1: Uh, Ducks Unlimited waterfowl scientist from National Headquarters here in Memphis. He's actually on the phone. He's in Winnipeg attending the North American waterfowl or North American duck symposium, I should say. And it's considered North America's most prestigious waterfowl conference. It's a gathering of waterfowl scientists, biologists. Um, they gather every three years, kind of come together. They've committed to do this, for, you know, from a science perspective, and they get together, learn what everyone's doing. And Mike. Uh, thanks for joining me. Can you kind of explain what the Waterfowl Symposium is to people who aren't aware?
2: Yeah, it's uh, it's one of the, you know, from a personal perspective and professional perspective, it's one of the highlights of, uh, you know, of a, of a let's say, three-year period. Because as you mentioned, they occur every three years. Yeah. Uh, and it's very unique in the, from the perspective of it's a conference uh, of all these professionals academicians and uh, uh, habitat managers waterfowl biologists and a lot of graduate students as well that are studying waterfowl ecology across the uh, across north america that that come together under under the the banner of a single taxonomic group, uh, you know, and, and that being, uh, it's called the North American Duck Symposium. And while ducks are indeed the focus of this of this conference, there are a number of presentations and posters and talks and discussions about uh, geese and swans and uh, and so it's not exclusively uh, about ducks, but they're definitely the focus. Sort of incidentally, I will mention that also. Every so often, there is the North American Arctic Goose Conference. Yeah. As, as well as the sea duck conference and so those two groups of, of waterfowl also sort of have their own their own little conference that's held occasionally uh, but it's it's a phenomenal gathering uh, for professionals in this field as you mentioned it's just the preeminent conference of this type for this field and it really is an opportunity for the scientific community uh, that studies this resource to get re-energized to learn about all the new things that are happening and to get an update on some of the results that are coming out from new projects and also to to reconnect with a lot of our colleagues and our friends and our and our partners. And so it's it's just a really neat, uh, really neat opportunity for us all. and And a lot of good comes out of it,
1: yeah, you mentioned that you know one thing that you kind of wanted to point out was, you know, this just shows, just a, a fantastic commitment to the science. And, you know, that's one thing that, you know, Ducks London members and, and some of our listeners may be interested in is just knowing, you know, that, that background science that goes into everything that you guys do uh, kind of explain that just, you know, just kind of the, the sharing of ideas and, and the commitment from even, even the organization.
2: Yeah, that is a really, uh, a really neat, aspect of our waterfowl management community and uh, I've attended a number of these conferences and I've had the opportunity to interact with people from different backgrounds that occasionally will be invited to present as a guest, you know, and then maybe they come from the climatological background or they come from the medical background or something of that nature. And they come to this conference in there. I've heard on numerous occasion remarks about how uh, how amazed they are and how impressed they are at the level of, of collaboration and cooperation among academic researchers, among federal researchers and state researchers and biologists. Uh, a lot of times in the academic community, you think about people being real really guarded with the work uh, with their own work because they like that proprietary information they like that recognition but the waterfowl management community and and you know to be honest a lot of the other natural resource communities management communities are much the same way where there is just a tremendous amount of collaboration and those those guests that often attend just remark about that and they say i just can't believe how much sharing of ideas sharing of knowledge and how how uh, how, how willing researchers are to work with one another and share these things that they're learning. And I think it, to me, that's a reflection, number one, the fact that this is a shared resource, migratory waterfowl are a shared resource across across states, across provinces and, and countries. Uh, but there's also just something really close-knit about this about this waterfowl management community where we all share a passion for it and we realize that none of us can do it alone because they are such a shared you know, transboundary resource. And, and so that's a really neat uh, aspect of this. And I think it's important for anyone that cares about the waterfowl resource to know that the states, the the the, the individual countries, and uh, they're not working in isolation. We're all working together on these things. And, and this conference is just another example of that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I've gone through, kind of looked and see what some of the speakers were talking about on the different days. And it's you know, just from an organizational and, you know, government standpoint. I mean, it's state agencies. Um, you've got Ducks Unlimited, Ducks Unlimited Canada, Delta Waterfowl, uh, just Canadian Wildlife Agency. I mean, there's so many different just fantastic uh, participants here. But let's get into some of those, you know, some of the different sessions. I know, uh, I believe Dr. Tom Mormon gave a presentation mm-hmm. today. Um, he sure did, and can can you kind of walk through that? I know we we can probably get Tom on to talk about that at some point, but um, can you kind of talk about a little bit of what he was he was uh, pre- presenting today?
2: Uh, absolutely, and and that could be and should be a podcast in and of itself. And absolutely. So so first, I, I will say. Each morning, this is this conference runs for uh, four full days, at least of presentations and posters, and it, it kicks off every morning. And the entire morning session is devoted to what we call the plenary session, and it's there's usually a, a it's a dedicated session around usually one topic, one central topic, and it's the only thing that's occurring at that time until so all the attendees are are, are able to. Um, to listen, to, to sit in on this conference and listen and participate, and we, uh, Tom and I and other colleagues, had submitted an idea for a plenary related to uh, a uh, an, an issue that that's received a lot of attention here recently. It's actually received a lot of attention dating all the way back to the 30s when you really dig into the d- dig into the books. But it's this this notion of changing distributions of waterfowl during the Uh, non-breeding season and how that may be related to all sorts of different factors and then how those distributional changes uh, intersect with our hunting community. And so anyone that hunted this past year will know that there were some there were some things that that uh that weren't quite like most years and yeah. you know we had we had some, we had some really crazy weather we had some uh, an abundant, abundant rainfall and so uh that that sort of stimulated some additional discussion this winter and spring and we saw an opportunity to uh, advance that conversation by way of a plenary session at this conference and so we submitted the idea it was accepted and so we had a pretty neat lineup we had dr tom mormon kicking off with uh, with sort of an overview of this notion of distributional changes in waterfowl during migration and, and really the winter period and and so he approached that from an evolutionary standpoint why birds are, are really adapted for those changes and then what uh, what are the different things that 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 can uh, motivate those changes through time and so it, it's a uh, yeah, I don't want to get in too much detail because like I say, that yeah, would, that's no, something we're gonna have that, to do that. <laughs> yeah, we'll do that cool. as a
1: standalone yeah. for sure.
2: What a- what I will say is that we really we had a really neat lineup there. We had uh, Tom kicking it off. The second person that that presented was uh, Dr. Mike Schumer from Syracuse University, and they're sort of at the leading edge of trying to understand the effects of climate, uh, long-term climate, and short-term annual variation in weather, mm-hmm. uh, namely, namely temperature and snow cover, and how it affects movements of ducks north and south through the flyways, and uh, and then. Uh, following Dr. Schumer, we had Dr. Frank Rower, the uh, president and chief scientist of Delta Waterfowl, mm-hmm. talking about uh, some sort of the demographics of waterfowl populations and the impacts that that may have on on hunter, uh, hunter success and harvest. And then – that session was concluded by Dale Humberg, former chief scientist of Ducks Unlimited Incorporated. And it was, it was a really, uh, and Dale is great at this. It was a really neat presentation on sort of the interface between waterfowl uh, hunters and then the habitat and, uh, and and how those things are relate to one another. And uh, the, it spoke a lot about, Um, how each of those can affect one another and really what do managers have the ability to control and what do we wish we had the ability to control and uh, it's a fascinating topic and it's a topic that every waterfowl hunter and really anyone that cares about waterfowl can appreciate because they see waterfowl change in response to uh, climate and weather. they see waterfowl change and whether it be You know, within year movements, or whether it be changes longer term, they see how changes on the landscape can uh, can result in changes in the distribution and composition of all the waterfowl that they're seeing out there. And so, you know, we have a lot of information out there, but it's not really uh, it's not really uh, hasn't been brought together in uh, in a in a very comprehensive fashion but then there are a lot of other things that we just still don't know once you yeah. break it down to individual species so like i said that's a topic that we can get farther into detail on but it was uh, it went it went very well this morning
0: you and your dog are a team fuel is best in the field and in life with purina pro plan sport made for hard-working dogs of all ages every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.
1: Just looking at the uh, looking at the, the brochure that I was interested in a stopover duration habitat use of mm-hmm. spring-migrating dabbling ducks in the Wabash yep. River Valley. Um, yep. I only say that because I'm from you know, grew up there, grew up hunting the Wabash River. And I'm like, man, that, that I'd like to sit in and listen to that. And then (laughs) you kind of brought up, you know, you sat in on one that was actually at the same time as that. And can you kind of explain that? And it's a Canada goose focus.
2: It was. It was a. Uh, it was given by a student. and That's one of the other things that I that uh, I I want to emphasize is yeah, I, I think the, the number of attendees this year is somewhere in the two hundred to three hundred range. And you know usually wow. we get attendance of three hundred to four hundred. I think there were some travel restrictions this year and travel challenges that some of our state partners had yeah. and maybe some of our federal partners in this, in the states. And so attendance might be down a little bit this year. But the, what I want to uh, point out is about a third of the attendees here are graduate students. And that's really, really important because those are the next professionals. And this is an opportunity for those students to hone their skills, to get experience presenting. You know, public mm-hmm. speaking is something that's really intimidating for a lot of people. But it's, it's also really, really important in this business because we as managers uh, and, and conservationists interfaced with the public so so often. So this is an opportunity for them to uh, to. To develop and hone those skills, and so I was attending this other presentation being delivered by a student because I had the opportunity to help judge this, this student. We provide uh, awards, you know, student presentation awards, and so that's why I was in this other uh, in this other session. And that yeah, there was a habitat use and movements of urban nesting Canada geese in Toronto. And this urban nesting Canada geese is, is phenomenon that a lot of people will be familiar with. And so what this oh, this yeah. student what this student had done is mark these Canada geese with these neck collars that provide locations down at you know a really fine scale. They have little GPS trackers in these collars, and they communicate with the cell towers to get the data and all this. Uh, the, the technology is, is and it, the inv- advancements that have been made are really, really impressive. And so uh, what this student was able to do is follow those Canada geese through their nesting period and, and to look at the different movements that... Successful breeders and failed breeders had, and I won't go into all the details, but one of the more notable things that he that he documented, and it's, it's, it's been documented before, but it's always just fascinating to see this stuff, is that approximately a quarter of the Canada geese that were unsuccessful with, uh, with their breeding attempt flew north, about 2,000 kilometers north to the sort of the northern extent of Hudson Bay to molt, you know, to, mm. to go through their flight list, but wow. they engaged in this. Molt migration, which a lot of people have probably heard of, and it's just incredibly—it's uh, just incredibly amazing to think that these birds would do that. And then, in, whenever they come back, so they go up north two thousand kilometers and they come back. And and then some of the the birds, when they're coming back, they're exposed to hunting pressure. A couple of his birds got shot. Yeah. And then there's a then there's about three quarters of the birds that stay there in Toronto and are never. Subjected to any uh, any hunting pressure at least mm-hmm. during that time. Eventually they'll head south, and they are um, all those birds eventually get out of Toronto during the winter and and or most of them anyway. And then they will be exposed to to uh, uh, to hunting. Actually, one of the other things he pointed out was about fifty five percent of the harvest of those birds from the Greater Toronto area are harvested in the states. Oh wow! So, and yeah, kind of you,
1: explain uh, just real quick because you mentioned that. I mean, the significant number of birds going up way north to the hudson bay to, to molt kind of explain what that molt migration is real quick just, just kind of a brief uh rundown of what the molt migration is
2: well it's it's a phenomenon where a lot of the canada geese you know, canada geese won't, won't nest until they're a couple or three maybe four years old and so those non-breeders will will kind of take off in the summer as well as those individuals uh, you know some of them uh, that failed in their nesting attempt and they'll They'll go to some other location presumably because historically or even currently it, it's a uh, some of these northern wetlands provide more stable water levels, wetland conditions that provide them greater uh, security and protection from yeah. predators and any other kind of factors that they may be exposed to during that during that flightless period because waterfowl, uh, go through a simultaneous wing molt. They drop all of their flight feathers at the same time. So these birds literally cannot fly for mm-hmm. about 30 days. So it, it obviously behooves them uh, on their survival side of things to be in an area where there's reliable water, there's reliable food, and there's they can hide from predators or any other kind of risk. And yeah. so that's some of these urban Canada geese will 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 fly north to some of these larger molting areas. And uh, the other thing that kind of happens there is they can mix with these, uh, with these uh, populations of Canada geese that do in fact nest at, at more northern uh, latitudes, uh, and so then that's that. Over oh, through the years, it's led to all sorts of efforts to understand the individual movement dynamics of these subpopulations of breeding Canada geese at Northern latitudes. And it's uh, yeah, it's, it's a really deep phenomenon. It's just crazy to think that they, that they, you know, would develop that pattern. Yeah.
1: No, but, I mean, that's just great science too. I mean, you know, just that, just the fact that there are people out there focusing on, on something like that, you know, as urban nesting Canada geese in Toronto, you know, it is specific, yeah, but it also right. has, you know, probably larger ramifications, and everyone sees um, you know, local—not everyone, but a lot of people in the U.S. are seeing you know local nesting geese and right. um, these these birds that that maybe are sticking around urban areas a little longer um, than they would in the past. And I think people are just seeing them, but. Uh, no, I mean, all these are great. Um, all these topics, we could probably go on for about three hours just for the oh, fact yeah. <laughs> that I'm, I'm looking at other, you know, everything from Arctic goose nesting to helicopter yep. waterfowl surveys yep. and, you know, PPR research in Iowa. Um, yep. you know, just some, some really cool stuff. Um, but no, I appreciate you coming, joining me today yeah. and, and kind of filling everyone in on, on what the, the symposium is and, and what, the, the commitment to science that all you guys are, are doing now and, and how, you know, waterfowl hunters and, and DU members yeah. um, can now know exactly where some of the science is coming from. Yeah. Yeah. W- one other thing I want to
2: share, if I, if I can, it was one of the more interesting things that we, yeah. uh, that we, uh, that I've heard so far. Uh, and, and I kind of alluded to this earlier. It's always fun and exciting to see the advancements in technology mm-hmm. and, and what, how much, how, how much additional information they can provide for our understanding of waterfowl ecology, but there's a particular um, particular application of technology that we heard about this week dealing with cavity nesting wood ducks, and I'll try to be brief on this. And basically, what the what the researcher out in California has done is he's used these pit tags. You've heard about. People uh, pit tagging their pets, their dog or their yeah. cat. Just these little devices that are uniquely coded, and so they can insert those subcutaneously under the skin of these wood ducks, and they can even do that when they're ducklings. And so then they can install these uh, these RFID readers you know the basically that read the pit tags on the side of the wood duck boxes and so they've done this for a number of years in this rather closed population of wood ducks out in california and they have this phenomenal data set showing the movements the they're not the movements but the 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 cavity use by individual wood ducks and wood ducks that were that hatched from this female and wood ducks that were hatched from it, you know, and so you have this fam- wow. fam- familial lineage that's sort of being developed. But the one thing that was so incredible to learn about is that these data showed that many wood ducks, many of these female wood ducks will visit up to 20 to 40 wood duck boxes in a single breeding season. It's just nuts to see this data showing that, that – so you have an individual wood duck that may visit 20 to 30 nest boxes. So and they're you just have,
1: looking for suitability or uh, – Well,
2: some of them are going to be laying their eggs in oh, this yeah. nest. And that's the other thing that they found is they can go in and they can genetically identify you – know, they can identify the genetic um, – uh, you know a signature if you will they can identify which hen is responsible for laying which egg and it's just there's just so much um, so much mixing of the eggs and uh, and just within some of these within individual nest boxes you know you'll have multiple hens that will lay an egg in in the nest boxes and then you have some nest boxes that are visited by 40 different hens wow. it's just real and, and previously our thought was that nest boxes might have been visited by only two or three hens and that an individual hen if a, if she was nesting in a box maybe she was committed to that nest box but these data are telling us something completely different it's just incredible to see some of this stuff it's, and that's one that's one of the things sort of going forward that the technology allows us to do is understand how individual birds are so different, different in their behaviors, different in their productivity, different in their survival. And that is really an exciting frontier in the, uh, in the, in the waterfowl ecology and science field. And and so that's, that's really, um, that's what I look forward to kind of going forward about all this, what technology allows us to understand.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's great. I mean, you, you talk about waterfowl and ecology and everything every day and probably have for, you know, many, many years, but it's pretty awesome when you, uh, you know, as a waterfowl scientist can sit there and have a aha moment. I mean, that's, that's fantastic. Yeah.
2: And Um, there's always a, and there's always a management application to this work. That's the other unique element to this is that nearly every one of these presentations will have some link to management. What does it mean on the surface? You may not think that that information that I just described is very important, but as we begin to understand how individual females are more beneficial or more, more productive than others, I mean, then it begins to help us understand in a fundamentally different way how waterfowl populations operate. And then we can apply that to, to our understanding of, of how certain activities, whether it be harvest or whether it be habitat management, how that may then translate into the benefits among those that, that different group of, of hens. And so it's just the management application of this is also – it's always – it's always there and that's something that's also very rewarding and i hope that our that our listeners appreciate
1: oh i'm sure they do like, I appreciate it. Thanks for joining me and uh, enjoy the rest of the conference. Absolutely. Thank you, Chris. Good talking with you.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash dupodcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks.